Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible, that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone, and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm here today with Satya Doyle Bayak. Satya is a psychotherapist uh, based in Portland, Oregon, and the director of the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies, and also the author of the upcoming book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. Welcome to the show, Satya. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is fun. Yeah, so happy to have you here. And full disclosure, I have studied a little bit with Satya. I just got done so sort of recently taking a couple of her courses at the Salome Institute, which I loved. And I just thought, Satya, you're so articulate that I wanted to have you on the podcast and hear more of what you have to say. Well, truly, I mean, it was fun to have you in those classes. And I'm excited to see where we go on our conversation today. Yeah, me too. I always like to start these interviews with checking in on this subject that I'm bringing to the table, which is the scarcity mindset, uh, because that that phrase is so, I think it's so broad and it can mean so many different things to different people. So I always like to check in and from your perspective, kind of find out what does that phrase mean to you or what does that evoke for you when you hear that that's one of the subjects we're kind of rooting into? I will say this, like I'm, I'm really conscious that I did not grow up poor. I have friends who grew up with genuine scarcity, which was not my experience growing up. And so I have really noticed that coming of age, which I think we're going to be talking about today, um, that I have always been a person who takes a lot more risks than some of my friends who I know grew up with genuine scarcity and, and survival, um, you know, financial survival being a part of their parents' day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And we growing up, that just wasn't, we, I wasn't worried about whether we were going to have enough to eat or whether I was going to be homeless. Right. And so I've, I've noticed for myself that I am kind of constantly pushing against scarcity mindset because it is so much a part of our culture, so much a part of capitalism, so much a part of kind of fear-based stuff, but that I've in a way kind of based my career and life on refusing to abide by scarcity But I'm also really conscious that's a privilege because it's not part of my trauma history. Um, Yeah. Right. And so just being aware of that, those, that awareness of trauma history and, and the awareness of the kind of cultural pressure to live with scarcity are two things that I am really conscious of pretty regularly. So I'm excited about this conversation and where it goes because of that. Yeah. Thank you. That's, I think, beautifully said and really does capture, I like the paradox of trying to have this conversation because it's the both and of acknowledging that scarcity is real and it causes real harm 
and that it's artificially perpetuated by the culture and by the inequitable systems we've created. So it's still worthwhile to try to do the work to shift the meaning and shift the way we think about it, even if that's a longer stretch of work, especially if we did grow up with more scarcity. So, and I think your work, um, there's so much in your work that speaks to this. So I'm really excited to get into unpacking the richness of of both what you're bringing and also everything I've learned from you just in the Jungian perspective of kind of developing that whole sense of self um, that can go beyond, I think, the scarce sense of self that we are conditioned to believe in. Totally. And and I love differentiating that because I do think there is like historical trauma that feeds into this, but then there is also a lot of work to expand our sense of what's possible in our own lives and in the world. And that's an exciting conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So can we start out by, I told you this, but I had the chance to read probably about half of your book and I loved it so much. It It's I was honestly, because some of the reading assignments you've given me through the the Salome Institute, I loved them all, but they were a little dense, right? They were the type of reading totally. that I was like, okay, I've got like 10 thick pages of dense reading, but your book is so readable and it's so accessible. It's just the type of book that I personally fly right through because I love, um, I loved how, yeah, how accessible you made the ideas and using kind of these composite case studies. So mm-hmm. it's really compelling and, and mm-hmm. based in storytelling. Well, I'm honored because, and I will say that, I mean, I was very late in the game getting you that book yesterday. So I'm thrilled that you've already read half of it and yeah, and that you're enjoying it. It definitely, a goal was to make it accessible and readable. So I'm glad you're finding yeah. that. It definitely is. I've already been chatting about it with my husband and I, I can already envision why everybody should read this book because mm-hmm. even though it's focused on people who are in quarter life, which I think you say that's kind of ages 16 to 36-ish, mm-hmm. more or less. Yeah. Yeah, 20 yeah, to 40, they, give or take. So Okay, okay yeah. yeah. So yeah. I can see how it's relevant to everybody because it's, you know, everyone has been through that phase of life and most of us are still actually processing the things that happened in that phase of life, totally. even if we've just left it. So totally. maybe we could start by actually having you define, since your expertise is really working with the quarter life phase, could you tell us a little more about what that means and why you were drawn to supporting people in that phase of life? Sure. So yeah, so as a clinician, as a psychotherapist, I've always wanted to work with people in this time of life that I call quarter life, which most many of us have heard the quarter life crisis. And um, my work is really sort of trying to emphasize this as a developmental stage of adulthood and not just a crisis point. So really honoring that there is a a stage of human development that is unfolding between roughly, as you say, 16 to 36. And I put those dates there or those ages there because I do think adulthood is, you know, when we start adulthood is a very flexible thing and it's flexible depending on demographics and upbringing and culture, but seems to happen somewhere between puberty and, you know, the early 20s. Um, And puberty is really when most cultures worldwide have historically honored the beginning of adulthood. It's the beginning of fertility, right? It's when people can become parents themselves and has been at times uh, worldwide when people do become parents, you know, quite early on. But we know that with 
high school and college and laws against child labor and an emphasis against child marriage, those years have really been expanding. And I think that's part of the confusion as we sort of lose track of, well, when does somebody become an adult? Um, mm-hmm. So so I have the ages, it's sort, I call it the first 20 years of adulthood. Um, quarter life is the second quarter, you know, begins with the second quarter, more or less of life. So it's somewhere around age 20 um, and, and continuing for 20 years. But but I emphasize this in my clinical work because like many clinicians focus on things that they kind of survived or suffered through. This period of life was incredibly confusing to me. The early 20s were for me existentially painful. We were living through kind of the beginning of the return to American warfare with our two longest wars now, Iraq and Afghanistan, that was all kicking off. But, you know, social structures felt really painful and I didn't know what I was doing with my life. So it was a tremendous collision and I and I felt like there wasn't enough support for that time of life. Do you want to say more about the story that you tell in the book about kind of the crisis point you came to in quarter life that shifted really your path, it sounds like? Sure. Um, the kind of bike ride home from from the corporate yeah. job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I tell a story at the beginning of the book that that really was a crisis point for me. It was I mean, it was I think of my roommates at the time and my close friends at the time, many of whom I'm still close friends with. But their memories, you know, we all grew up with each other. There's crises all over the place. But this was one of the pinnacle crises of that time. Um, in which I had gotten a very well-paying job at a um, funded startup in downtown Portland, the the building, if you live in Portland, called Big Pink. I think I was on the 26th floor of Big Pink and was working around a lot of men. I want to call them dudes or bros. It was a very kind of different environment for me. Um, Some very nice people, some more problematic (laughs) Um, but it wasn't where I wanted to be and I didn't care about what we were building at all. And so I was torn. I mean, I was 23 at the time and I was a project manager at this tech firm and was really torn between knowing I was making real money and better money than I was going to make doing any of the other jobs I'd been doing. Um, you know, I was also like working at the front desk of a yoga studio or all sorts of little jobs yet this work wasn't feeding me. So it was providing for me financially, but it was doing nothing for me emotionally. And that tear of how do you get both, right? In the Mm -hmm. book, I get into the definitions of stability and meaning. And for me, this job was providing for me from a perspective of stability, but it was doing nothing for me from a perspective of meaning. And so I, you know, bike home and sort of open the door and collapse, um, in a sobbing fit, knowing that I was sort of, I felt like I was being ripped apart on some level internally. I did not know what the right thing to do was. I felt like I was being pulled in two totally separate directions. Um, And it really was a turning point for me of trying to sort out how am I going to do this adult thing by, by honoring my emotional and existential needs while also putting food on my own table. You know, I didn't have kids, don't have kids. Um, but it's it's a struggle. I really loved and appreciated the way that in your book you discern between the the meaning types and the stability types in quarter life. It is so simple and yet so brilliant and spot on. And when you describe the meaning type, 
I felt like so seen, right? I was like, oh my God, that is me to a T, every single thing you said. And of course, I'm 42 now. So I'm sort of at that finally graduated from quarter life phase. And what I've actually noticed is that a lot of meaning type folks like myself who struggled a lot through quarter life are actually loving moving into midlife yeah. because we built a, a foundation that was really meaning rich, but also, and now are maybe finally stabilizing a little bit. Whereas, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to have you explain a little bit more so that other people understand what we're referring to, because I really want to unpack this a bit. So could you explain kind of this discernment between meaning types and stability types in quarter life? Totally. And, I, and I'm just grinning ear to ear to ear because I love hearing you identify with that. And really, I feel like you get what I'm expressing in this book in terms of what happens. I mean, I say at some point, you know, if, if basically if meaning types survive quarter life and figure out quarter life, they tend to have pretty rich, you know, midlife years, I think, because the crisis, the midlife crisis has really been survived and lived through in some fundamental way, because you've already kind of learned to combine deep meaning with some sense of stability, right? Yeah. Um, so I'll back up as you know, and talk a little bit about meaning types and stability types. And then what happens in, in my mind to stability types, who kind of fly through quarter life in a different way. So the notion is that ultimately, all of us want stability and meaning. And that historically adulthood has really been geared towards creating stability and that the midlife crisis is a, is a crisis point of meaning. P people who have built stability need to find meaning and that that's historically what the midlife crisis has been about. But we also know that some people have never done great in quarter life and that there have always been artists and creatives and depressives and, you know, whatever you want to call them, people for whom quarter life just does not work. Historically, in my experience of the literature, the psychological literature, and also um, biographies, memoirs, you know, the literature, literature itself, novels, storytelling, uh, there are people for whom this path through adulthood never made sense, but they kind of just get written out of history and they certainly get written out of developmental psychology. They are problems in some way. They are diagnosed with something but they're not seen as normal in the developmental literature. And part of what I'm really trying to do with this book is assert that actually all these paths are normal in development. We just need to understand them within the larger frame. And so the way that I do that and came to kind of uh, differentiating what's happening is a spectrum of development, right? Spectrums can be very helpful for understanding the actual human experience versus trying to define people by one standard. Um, and so there's a spectrum on one side, stability and stability types, and on another side, meaning and meaning types. And people tend to, to um, establish themselves pretty easily as either a stability type who feels relatively solid in the external world, in kind of career and, you know, quote unquote, normalcy of adulthood, but they struggle sometimes with feelings of emptiness or purpose or meaning um, and need to go in search of meaning for wholeness. And on the other side, there are people who identify pretty readily as meaning types. So, so there are meaning types then who feel very comfortable in the inner world, often with dreams and symbols and the unconscious and spirituality and 
you know, like Kate, I think you enjoyed Mm -hmm. yoga early on, and I don't know all of your history, but feel comfortable in those spaces. Um, But holding down a nine to five job feels almost impossible. And Mm -hmm. the idea of, of getting married and having kids right away feels maybe far off. So that external world expectations of what we typically call adulthood feel kind of impossible or, or really painful. And for stability types, they feel like secure places to land, you know? So, but meanwhile, as you say, meaning types need to find stability over time because we have to survive on this planet and we have to, you know, learn how to pay our bills and all that. So that's the broad spectrum. Yeah. I love it. Do you identify as a meaning type as well, Satya? I do typically. I mean, this is tricky because again, it's a spectrum and depending on our families and all that, I was the meaning type in my family, but Mm -hmm. my family's also got a pretty solid blend of the two, but I was definitely the meaning type child who was struggling more than my sibling Mm. to find her way. Are you... Are you the younger one? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah. I suspect it probably falls in those lines typically. I know that uh-huh. I've, re- I've read that before just about older and younger sibling dynamics, that it's kind of common for the firstborn to feel a higher level of responsibility to mm-hmm. stability and to kind of achievement in a certain external pleasing way, which then gives a little permission sometimes to the younger child. To, and I know you, you write about this in your book about how sometimes yeah. sibling pairs create kind of a duality around meaning and stability, which is so true in my family system. My brother just retired at the age of 44 because wow. he's done very well in his career as a computer programmer and working in a corporate environment, whereas I probably just opened my first retirement savings account, <laughs> you know, after having spent my most of my adult life, yeah, making art and, and being an entrepreneur totally. and being much more free-flowing. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, again, I just love how clear this is for you. And, you know, it's meaningful to me to hear you speak about it all because it really it's like so often sibling pairs. I give various examples in the book, but but I think that's right, probably that the older sibling is often the one who's kind of charging forward and and doing what they're supposed to do on some level, you know, with variety. I mean, everyone's still building their own life. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, the younger siblings are like, I can't, I can't do it that way. I'm very confused. This isn't working for me. Yeah. I I wrote down a lot of little quotes from your book, but there's one where you say, when adulthood looks like a wasteland of values or a future absent of enthusiasm, it may also be rational for quarter lifers to hesitate to grow up. So there's that feeling that I know I had, and I think I surrounded myself with other meaning types probably. So it's very normal in my group of subcultures to feel that to focus on what we may call practical in our society also feels like kind of a compromise of really important values, which is a little bit, even when I started this podcast and I wanted to propose that I think the stability type message in our culture says We need to be very concerned with scarcity. It's very real. You need to participate in a game of winners or losers. You need to participate in a zero-sum type of a way of thinking about things, which isn't, it doesn't match my value system or how I want to think about the world. And I struggled at first with feeling like, well, people may look at this perspective that maybe scarcity is not actually as much of a problem as we're saying it is. They may look at that as kind of idealistic or pie in the sky or... It is that you're treated almost like it's a childish idea or it hasn't fully grown up into this adult reality that we have to compromise what we actually believe in in order to totally. stability. 
Um, and I, there was something else you said. Let's see if I actually wrote it down here. Oh, yeah. This, this is something I think I say to my clients all the time, some version of this, which is that um, a pursuit of meaning for stability types will ultimately support their goals of stability, mm-hmm. right? There's that sense that people people think that something practical is more stable, but if it's actually compromising who they really are or compromising something very deep for them that they haven't accessed, it's not stable at all, right? Because it leads to these crisis points that we're talking about, or it leads to, yeah, like almost like their body shuts down. I know people who like when they keep working the corporate job they hate, they will just go into some really surprising, like, why is my body shutting down and it won't let me get out of bed? And I don't know why. Totally. Right? So I guess, could you talk a little more about that kind of, yeah, when people go a little bit more into believing that stability looks like compromising meaning, what what is the risk of that? Totally. I mean, you know, I think of this in terms of Jungian psychology primarily, right? I mean, that's so much my frame. So the psychology of Carl Jung, which a lot of people know little bits of, and I think people are familiar with the idea of the shadow um, and the, and the need for wholeness. I mean, a lot of Jung's work is just this sort of fundamental acknowledgement that we as, as creatures of nature are seeking wholeness. And that can seem very abstract, but if we understand that we are, our whole systems are, are wired to pursue wholeness, whether we consciously want that or not, I think a lot of things start to become more clear. If you are in a job that you deeply hate, (laughs) that you find no real sense of purpose or meaning from, you will at some point, like there will be a reckoning you know, within your own system. And I don't mean that from a moral perspective. I mean that like, it will catch up with you. It will catch up with us. And I think sometimes about this notion from Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the idea of having a low bottom or a high bottom, you know, which is to say that some people can end up at Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. or realize that they're an addict because they, um, you know, trip and fall and hit their head when they're drunk. And for other people, it can take five DUIs and car accidents and a death or something, right? So um, so I know from telling the story of this corporate job when I was 23, my whole system has a very high bottom, so to speak, which is that I am very incapable of trudging through and making do. I can't do a nine to five job without breaking down. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, it's just not in my, it's not in my system. Um, you know, I'm quote unquote sensitive or like there's all these other terms for what that looks like, but some people really can tolerate it. And they, I think, can then delude themselves that there isn't this necessity for meaning and wholeness in their system too. And so they're, they have a very low bottom, but at some point it shows up, you know, and they need, they need to pursue what their soul actually wants while they're on this planet. It's not just about showing up and making do. That's a really useful way of thinking about it. Yeah. I sometimes think of that. It's really just, it is a little bit about sensitivity and Mm -hmm. to some extent resilience, right? Because there's, to some extent, our culture admires that ability to be very, to keep going no matter what, you know, but it's useful to have that higher level of sensitivity, I think, because even though it leads to an earlier crisis point, it also helps yeah, I see it as like, well, I want stability, but I want to build stability around something that's actually sustainable in the long term and not just right. a short term fix, right? 
And that totally. to me feels like more true stability. Totally. So it's kind of reframing it from the often derided sensitivity to really honoring that we all have antenna. It's like, what are your mm -hmm. antenna picking up? And how and how yeah. sensitive are your antenna to picking up what's right or wrong? Um, so then we can use it as a tool to get us where we want to be versus something that's just constantly tripping us up and causing stress. It strikes me too that if we think about, so when I think about the scarcity mindset, I think of both the external fears that we're not going to have enough mm -hmm. uh, or that we don't have enough and the internal fears that we are not enough. And reading some of what you were talking about with uh, quarter, different quarter life challenges uh, at first I thought, well, the meaning types are probably the ones who usually have the internalized, like I'm not enough, right? Mm. Because there is a lot of, if you're the nonconformist, as you say, you're diverging from what the program is, what society has said, well, totally. the way to show you're enough is to achieve certain markers of external success. Like you're making a certain amount of money or you've checked the boxes of the path, the marriage, the kids, whatever that looks like in your family system or your culture. It strikes me that the meaning types may have more of the internalized version of scarcity fear. I'm not sure. Does that pan out in terms of your experience of what you've seen? You know, it's a great question. I mean, I'm thinking about it as you're asking. And I think that my sense is that both types have those internalized fears. The stability or meaning response is more of a defense system. You know, it's kind of fight or flight. It's like some people will attack and some people will run. And so there's just a, a different different ways that we all defend ourselves. And I think that very frequently stability types, for instance, you know, young women, there's this notion of like the parentified child. You know, it can be a child who's feeling uh, very depressed at home or very uncertain at home, very stressed at home, but female uh, children in particular, I think white females in particular will go into a kind of hyper um, productive defense system. So they can put on kind of a hyper stability persona and be getting perfect scores in school and all that. Mm -hmm. But actually they are terrified internally or um, have extremely low self-esteem. Uh, so I think that really stability types and meaning types more are just how how people are handling it. You know, yeah, um, they both may have very internalized sense of scarcity. Um, and in fact, the stability types that I am kind of most familiar with growing up uh, are people who have a deep sense of, you know, struggle with self-worth internally, but they can't tolerate facing it. And so they mm -hmm. just keep performing in some way and, and, you know, squirreling away money and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm remembering that you did write a bit about perfectionism mm -hmm. and its relationship to that type. And I always think perfectionism is, yeah, it is such a classic way that that scarcity mindset shows up that's kind of sneaky and tricky, right? Because it, like, it looks like you're achieving at a high level, but really you're driven by the sense that you can totally. never be good enough and that nothing you do is ever good enough. And so you just keep on, you know, it's that totally. thing. I think Brene, Brene Brown calls it hustling for worthiness or whatever, mm -hmm. but that like you're constantly trying to prove that you actually are enough. Totally. I mean, it's so common. I think of you know, how frequently like the prettiest girls in high school are driven because they think that they're not pretty enough. So they're the ones getting up, doing their hair at 5 a.m. or whatever. It's so interesting to see how our deepest insecurities, we hide so well, you know, and people would mm -hmm. never know. 
Um, I think that's frequently the case with stability types. Yeah. So I'm curious, I suspect, uh, you know, I probably have a somewhat diverse listenership, but I suspect that there are a higher number of meaning types and also entre entrepreneurial types who listen to my podcast. And I'm curious about a little bit about your journey, because from the outside anyway, it appears to me that you made a really successful pivot towards being able to integrate what was meaningful to you with what would stabilize you. And that now you've built a really beautiful business around your Dharma work, like the work that really seems fit for you, that is really meaningful to you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that part of your journey? And if you could speak to people who are really struggling to integrate those two things you've seen that can support that for them? Sure. I mean, it's such a, it's such a huge question. Like I, I'm excited yeah. to, to, to really chew on it together, because I think there's a lot of components to it. Um, you know, firstly, just to honor the reality of my upbringing and, you know, my makeup, I come from, you know, I mean, this is an awkward thing to say, but I come from a high functioning family, you know, like a very, I have two highly functioning and professional parents who are people who also were always um, in different language, but they were always searching for stability and meaning and how to have both. Um, and, and they, they're a part of my book as a result. I mean, really me witnessing kind of anthropologically observing my family system as being people who were, um, always searching for meaning. I mean, my parents were transcendental meditators when I was born, which is how I got a Sanskrit name at birth. You know, this is sort of my upbringing, right? But they are also people who are professionals. So they were kind of professional, um, seekers, you know, so that's always been part of my upbringing, but it's also modeling for me to say, I know that this is possible to have both and that my core kind of self-talk has always been around or increasingly has been around believing that on this planet, we can pursue both stability and meaning and that I have flipped the script in a way around privilege, um, you know, all of my upbringing, you know, privilege and, and sort of witnessing where we are in the, you know, global system and certainly in the American system, you know, that's been a part of my awareness since I was very young, but, um, but it was rather than sort of decrying privilege, it's been part of my self-talk to say with privilege comes responsibility. And with privilege comes a necessity to model something different, which is to say, rather than buying into the system, I'm going to try to push against it and create something else. Um, so how can we have stability and meaning simultaneously versus just sort of uphold systems that we know are hurting everybody? So, you know, when I was a quarter lifer, um, working a bunch of odd jobs, I was having constant, <laughs> constant breakdowns, constant mental anguish, and knew that I had to figure out, I mean, it was really life or death for me, how I was going to both pay my bills and feel okay being alive. I mean, it was very, very visceral for me. If I was going to stay on this planet, if I was going to find a sense of purpose and meaning, I had to also figure out how to pay for things um, and and hold a relationship and all those stability things, right? So 
Um, so it became my life's work. And luckily for me, because it was part of my dharma, as you say, part of my real soul calling, is I found the work of Carl Jung, which fed me very deeply and gave me uh, um, a, an orientation to existence that made sense. So that I, you know, I had worked through Buddhism and and a lot of Hinduism and yoga and all those things had fed me, but they weren't giving me a full holistic orientation. So so Jungian psychology allowed me to go become a psychotherapist, and that created the structure for me. You know, I talk about this, and and you know, this is kind of a core point. I think is what mainstream structures can we use as meaning types to our own ends? So rather than you know, for me going, being kind of a meaning type and going a more meaning type direction, I decided to get a well-respected license, you know, to become a licensed psychotherapist in the state of Oregon. That was sort of the external cred that I needed to then, you know, it was a container. It was a legitimate container that I could then pour my meaning self into. And I think that's a, a critical piece of this is what are the respected containers that you can then create to your own ends in some way. Yeah, that's a really powerful question and also example. I know because I work at, I am an entrepreneur and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of coaches, right, who sort of took a bazillion different paths of creatively <laughs> like making up the meaning of their work. Um, that is definitely a big struggle, right? Because there's not as many common touch points, it's really like the wild west. And when you're in the wild west, you're the only thing to root into that's a container is really capitalism and the way it's been done. Um, and luckily, I've I've been fortunate to meet and learn and also be able to model that business can be done so many different ways, and it can be done in meaningful ways, and it can be done in disruptive ways. Kind of like what you were describing of recognizing that the responsibility that comes with the privilege of doing this is that you also can shift the way it's done and that's right and have it be more visionary but the, it is a really common struggle that people are constantly coming up against of like i don't like the container <laughs> the container is so limiting or it it totally. makes me compromise my values in xyz way and so yeah i think that's a really powerful question that not everybody may go in the educational path as as their way of getting the container but whatever the container looks like, like everyone in my field has to learn how to do marketing, right? Even if you hate marketing and you think that, totally. <laughs> you know, you're, there's so much resistance, you have to learn to do it in a way that works for you. I'm, yeah. Well, and that's part of this. I think if we look at this as psychological development versus political, you know, mm -hmm. then we have to honor, we have lopsided qualities, even if we're quote unquote, the most meaningful, most spiritual, whatever, there's still growth edges. And you don't become a sellout by learning how to mar do marketing. You don't right. become a sellout by getting a graduate degree. It's really like, what, what are the compromises that my system can tolerate, but that will also help me to grow and round out to learn to survive in a world? Like we're not, we, I'm not gonna be able to completely transform the society in which I live, you know, to then make it comfortable to me. There has to be, uh, compromises and conformities. Um, they doesn't mean we have to sell out, but it means we have to learn and grow and expand in our own ways in order to function in the world. And so mm -hmm. what are those compromises that we can tolerate and what are those containers that we can utilize to, to make meaning in the world? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I love your work here. Having learned a little bit of of the union perspective about finding what's the, what is the shadow, what is the thing that we're pushing away that actually we require for wholeness, and then having you discern this particular problem that you're tackling in your work that it is the stability and the meaning. I think it helps to kind of soften judgment a little bit, right? To say like, yeah, people who are pursuing stability have made certain compromises that, that if you are holding a hard line on meaning. You, and you never want to make that compromise, that is all well and good, but you will require stability. And I think that's the point of a lot of stability types. It's like, well, if you don't come over here and make some compromises, I will actually have to support you totally. <laughs> because you will not even have your basic needs met. Right. And this is, we are in this world and the world is how it is. So we need a both and we need an integration and it's very messy and imperfect Totally. But it's, but I think that's exactly it. You know, the, the softening of judgment is, is also a real goal of my book, but it's also a, the self-work needed to say, ultimately we all need stability and meaning externally and internally and stability types and meaning types can very often point fingers at each other. Like meaning types mm -hmm. are like, ugh, what a boring, normal norm core sellout or whatever. And Stability types can, you know, like what a drag on society or, you know, what a loser, like whatever these ways that people point fingers at the other type versus saying, I need to learn what that person knows. Yeah. Like in some way, both types need to learn what the other side knows. And that then makes it more of a personal task versus a projection or, or a, you know, judgment. Yeah. And even though this, it definitely is not um, limited to, say, political divisiveness, it definitely crossed my mind reading your work that there's an obvious pattern with, in some ways, with the current political divisiveness that we have that um, I think I remember watching, now I can't remember the name of the person, but I watched a TED Talk years ago that was talking about the personality traits of conservatives mm -hmm. and liberals and how they value different things. And all of those values are really important to a whole society and a really healthy democracy. And they fall on the lines you would predict, like that conservatives tend to value things like security and stability and predictability a little bit more, whereas liberals tend to value things like novelty and growth and travel and like learning about other cultures and, you know, open-mindedness and things like that. And so it really, I was reminded of it in reading this discernment that if we can make wholeness with these two parts of ourselves, that does seem helpful in understanding why there are people in society who value things maybe a little differently. Totally. I, I think it's fascinating to map it that way. I mean, I, I definitely, given the current divisiveness and the range of, <laughs> of, you know, are conservatives even conservative anymore? Are liberals even right. liberal anymore? It's so confusing. Yeah. Um, totally. But I'm really conscious of also just as we age that stability on some level gets more and more comforting to meaning types. And again, meaning gets more and more compelling to stability types as we age, like things start to shift I mean, it's just, it, you, you, we could map this in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different thoughts that cross my mind when you bring it to the political, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, it's sort of that conservative to liberal, like we talk about, if you go to college, uh, you liberalize, you know, supposedly the statistics are that anyone who goes to college kind of liberalizes and, and starts pursuing meaning and questions of meaning and all that. Um, but also as you age, you get more and more conservative in some way. Mm. I don't know. In any case, there's a lot of yeah. thoughts that cross my mind as we as we talk about that. So I don't know if you want to get into this 
today, but I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, because I'm only halfway through, I've only just cracked into the four pillars that you're describing mm. in the book. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, I know there's a lot there. Would it be, do you think it could possibly be helpful to orient people if they were wanting to take away something kind of, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, actionable or like, how would I root into this work and the process of it? How would you feel about maybe spending a few minutes explaining the four pillars that you describe in the book? Sure. Um, I'm happy to. It's uh, what I what I say is that there are four pillars of quarter life development or in a way adult development. And I mean this really psychologically. So so many books get into the kind of here's you know here's how you do your taxes here's what you need to do like pay your pay your bills and get real all that kind of real life stuff quote unquote the adulting as it's come to be called and i'm really trying to focus on the psychological process and so in 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 my research and deep dives into this and the way that i've wanted to convey it I don't want to say simply, but by digestibly, right, is is to kind of honor these four pillars of development. And I call them to separate, to listen, to build, and to integrate. And so very briefly, the way that I understand these is that there is a very clear instinct in quarter life that continues to separate, and that is to separate, which it like to leave home, you know, to get away from one's parents or upbringing, to leave the church where one grew up. There's all different ways where we are um, drawn to separate from the past, but it's also a deeper psychological process of no longer being whoever we were before as we knew ourselves. And there's a lot of different ways. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of different examples, but that shows up differently for each person's life. But it's a need to re-understand oneself as an independent person. The second pillar is listening, to listen. And, and that is this more kind of meaning type inclination, but it's the more and it's the more introverted inclination to listen and hear ourselves our soul's longings, our needs in the world, our instincts, our food preferences, what makes us happy, what makes us sad. It's really tuning one's ear to one's own self and one's own existence to learn about oneself. And again, meaning types tend to be better at this than stability types. Um, So it's kind of more of a meaning type orientation. Then building um, requires really hard labor, (laughs) you know, so it's more of the stability type inclination, but building is learning to genuinely then construct and create the life that you want and also the world that you want. So it's taking action. It requires willpower, discipline, devotion, determination, and it, and it really is externalizing in many respects what you've learned from listening to yourself. And then integration is what it sounds like, you know, it's really allowing these things to, to um, come into relationship with each other. Uh, But very often, we see people kind of have periods of like catalytic growth or transformation. And so this is kind of a pillar in the sense that it's often a, an experience that as people are working to integrate this stuff, some magic shows up. And things really do start to integrate and people experience incredible wins with career that they didn't expect or, you know, suddenly they find somebody to partner with that they genuinely feel like, oh, oh, this person both meets my needs functionally and emotionally. Right. Um, So things start to work out when when we when we really are integrating this stuff in our own lives. Mm, I love that. 
Yeah, it makes me think of just a bit of, I was already feeling reminded of the psychology of the chakras, which I tend to talk about and teach on a lot because it was Mm -hmm. the core of the yoga teacher training program that I ran for many years. And um, with the first two, the first and second chakra are very much the like stability versus feeling and meaning. Yeah. Um, But I'm hearing there's also this moving into like the action taking and the building and the willpower that we might get in the upper chakras and then the integration. So I'm just, this is just for chakra nerds out there if you want. (laughs) Well, what I love, I mean, I think it's like religion. It's like every, wherever you start from, you're all speaking about the divine, you know? And I, and I really think ultimately if we're getting to the root of psychology, we're all talking about the same things through different lenses um, it's about wholeness and a lot of yogic work maps directly onto Jung- Jungian work, which is, which is, you know, I love both of those worlds. So I'm with you. Mm. Yeah. As, as I was reading your work, I was reminded of one of my favorite books that I'm always recommending to people is Yoga and the Quest for the True Self by Stephen mm. Cope. Mm. And he, Stephen Cope is a Western trained psychotherapist who then got really into yoga. So he does a lot of cool integrating and comparing the two essentially. And I read that book. It is a book that uh, sort of landed in my life in a very auspicious way, you know, on a morning when it was daylight savings in the fall and I had an extra hour accidentally because I showed up early and wandered through Powell's and just found this book. Anyway, uh, I think I was exactly like 26, right in that kind of peak of the like angst of quarter life-iness. <laughs> And so to have something like that, um, that really talks a lot about psychological development, but then also links it to the teachings of yoga, I ended up finding it to be such an incredible compass at that time. And I think you're right that there's not, what I hear in your work is that this is a really underserved, under discussed time of life. And I think you're absolutely right. I have a feeling your book is going to be iconic, Satya, Mm -hmm. because it's such a need for people to be validated. And so many of the people who came through my yoga teacher training were in quarter life. You know, a lot of times that's where they land because they're like, I'm looking for meaning and stability. So I'm going to do something (laughs) that says it'll give me like a vocational direction, but that also I know is going to help me understand myself and and touch base with meaning. Um, So I really watched this struggle with so many of them and that feeling of like you think something's wrong with you or that you're doing it wrong instead of like, no, you're doing it exactly right. I mean, I want to mm-hmm. read another quote from the introduction to your book where you say, quarter life is not a sterile journey. It demands the gathering of experiences, messy, embodied, uncharted experiences. Full psychological development cannot be accomplished without complex relationships, failures, risks, longings, and adventure. Uh, despite Western culture's desire to mitigate that mess and chaos, psychological development in quarter life doesn't follow a simple plan. And I think even those words are sort of comforting to just remember, like, of course, you're going to have a bunch of messes and failures. Like, you couldn't possibly come out of that part of your life in any way that would actually help you grow if you didn't have that. But I think so many people interpret their first failed relationships, failed jobs, failed collaborations as like, see, I'm no good at the thing. I didn't fit on the track. And now I'm wandering aimlessly. I mean, even you reading it again, like I feel comforted because I I mean, I wrote this in many respects for my meaning self, you know, for, and, and I think I can imagine actually stability types might be freaked out by what you just read, ironically, because it's like, wait, but I am doing it right. What does that mean? You know, 
um, if I am kind of checking the boxes and for the most part, keeping it together. Uh, and so that's the irony, you know, that's that Western culture really isn't seeking psychological development. It's seeking a linear climb. And we all know that it climbs to nowhere and that's the struggle, you know? So yeah. if we're really pursuing wholeness, it's hard because it's uncharted. We have to figure it out on our own on some deep level. What, who am I in this world, in this moment of history? That's uncharted. Mm, yes. And I, and I feel that the cultural shadow there is that we've been taught to make all of our meaning out of money, that money is the most meaningful thing. And as long as you believe that, you can follow that path and possibly even be satisfied with it. And it, what's so challenging and kind of almost pisses me off is that because of that false story, there's like, I think a lot of people who can see the falseness of that story ended up rejecting money completely. And mm -hmm. I think you say this in your book too, how a lot of times the meaning types will really struggle with money for many years because they've associated it with a lot of bad meaning. And that's been so much of my process and my work has actually just been the money mindset piece of learning. How do I reconnect with how this is a meaning actually does have good, positive meaning for me without right. it having to buy into that, that narrative that I don't actually want to support. Totally. Yeah. It's, I think, huge to differentiate between money itself and the projection onto money. Yeah, absolutely. I know that was a big insight when I first started working with a business coach and I learned, I was like, oh, I have that belief that I just don't want to have to worry about money. And because of that belief, I have put myself in a situation where I'm always worried about money. So it's that, it, it's that shadow. It will always totally. come back. Oh, you don't want to worry about me. You don't want to look at me. <laughs> you don't want to think about me. Right. Well, guess what's going to become the top biggest problem that you're you're going to have to face every day until you're willing to look right. and integrate and heal that relationship. Yeah. It's yeah. huge. It's huge. And dependency, you know, really, that's why build becomes such a critical pillar for meaning types is, um, and, you know, in, in other languaging, it can be about developing the masculine um, where we need to function externally. We need to do this kind of hard labor work um, again, different schools, different religions are going to see this in different language, but um, without developing that side of ourselves, we can become reliant on relationships um, with other people, sometimes abusive relationships, toxic relationships, because we're not comfortable developing those those forms of, you know, hard work and devotion within our own bodies and selves. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the hopes that I have hinged my path on and to some extent this podcast on is that I do think there's an integration there where you don't have to work in a way that compromises the deepest part of who you are or the most meaningful part of who you are. Um, and if that's insufferable to you, as it, you know, you described earlier, and it was to me as well, if every time I tried to work a job that was like my whole body and spirit was just like, no, 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 <laughs> I couldn't keep going. It was it. And so, and some people, I think the conservative perspective on that would say, oh, well, you just don't want to work hard and you don't totally. realize that this has to be sacrificed. But I don't know anybody actually who doesn't want to work. <laughs> like, I think that laziness is a myth and that whole thing is a myth. It's that people don't, they want to be contributing their life force to that, which they, their life force is drawn to growing in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, and it is that pursuit of where can I do that? How can I do that in a way that will sustain me that isn't easy to find, isn't, yeah, it's, as you say, it's not a linear path. And um, 
it's, right. it can take years and it can be cyclical and it can, and sometimes you find yourself right back at the same problem, but you you're encountering it in a new way. It's a, tr a tricky discernment, but I also yeah. like, I always hope to give people permission and hope that you, you don't have to compromise the most meaningful parts of, of yourself ever actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be able to create stability. That's, that's my, that's what I'm sticking to. That's a belief. Yeah. I'm sticking well, to. it's <laughs> certainly my hope as well. I mean, I, you know, uh, I think we have a certain a amount of freedom currently in America for that to be true. I mean, I do think of places like, um, you know, more dictated places that are truly run yeah. by dictators um, and truly not free in the most fundamental way. I don't know that this holds in those places. Um, and I, I struggle yeah, I with agree. that, you know, but I, but I do think that this is where the privilege responsibility comes in. It's like, if you can, why wouldn't you? That's what it comes down yeah. to, to me. Why would you continue to uphold a system that hurts people all the time, that it stops being about hippie wishful thinking? It's more like a requirement to live your yeah. fullest life because we have the privileges to do so, even if it's really hard at times. And that then, it just changes the narrative. Absolutely. I, I often think about just even being a woman and having the opportunity to own your own business, which is something that one generation ago was, it wasn't that it was impossible, but it was much more difficult because one generation ago, there were women who couldn't even have get bank loans and credit cards. I mean, I've told this story before, but like when I went in to sign my first commercial lease for the yoga studio, my landlord wanted my father to co-sign on the lease and he didn't oh, know my father or my anything about my father. God. He was just that old school oh, dude. And I had my baby with me. And so I think he took one look at me and was like a woman with a baby. Like, no, she needs a male co-signer. So, and we, I ended up wow. saying absolutely not. And he ended up renting to me anyway, but I'm very aware that it is very fresh that women have any opportunity to really be in charge of their own direction, both with meaning and stability. Totally. That is brand new. It's brand new. And so- it's like, yeah. I feel like it's almost like, okay, well, rush, rush for it then. Like, do right. not let this moment pass because it could slip away mm -hmm. easier than we know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. You know, it's really becomes a responsibility. Like, how do we live, live our deepest selves in this world? Because it is so tenuous all the time for whatever body you're in, whatever freedoms we have, it's tenuous. And I think it, it becomes like, there's a sense of urgency around it then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am just thankful for you putting this really important work into the world. And I encourage everybody to check out the Salome Institute, everything that you offer. I wish I could sign up for every single course because they're all amazing. Um, Thank you, Kate. We have fun. I'm so glad you've been able to be a part of it. Yeah, it's a beautiful community, really awesome conversations happening. And um, yeah, I know that I'm going to link to uh, being able to pre-order your book in the show notes. Is there anywhere else that you would like for people to check out what you're up to, like on social media, anything like that? Yeah, social media has not been a strong point for me. So, um, but the Salome Institute, uh, which is salomeinstitute.com. Um, and then my author website, which we're remaking for the book launch, but um, is uh, currently quarterlife.org. Uh, and, and yeah, the book, you know, pre-orders is awesome. So I'm so grateful for your support. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for talking today and good luck with your book launch. I hope, I hope it's really you. wildly successful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you.
You too. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Space Beyond Scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you.